Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society webinar. This afternoon, July 26, 2022, we discuss the future of homemade firearms and go over the legal and political implications of the ATF Final Rule 2021R-05F. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinions are those of our experts on today's program. Today, we are fortunate to have two excellent speakers whom I will introduce very briefly. First, we have Professor Drew Stevenson, who is a Wayne Fisher Research Professor and Professor of Law at South Texas College of Law, of Law Houston. He joined the faculty there in 2003 and teaches administrative law slash regulation, professional responsibility, nonprofit incorporation, legislation, and the law and economic seminar. His articles have been cited in leading academic journals and treatises by the federal and state appellate courts and in recent briefs to the United States Supreme Court. Professor Stevenson's current research focus is on firearms law and policy. Next, we have Matthew LaRosier, who's the director of legal policy at the Firearms Policy Coalition. He writes on the, uh, he writes on the subject of the Second Amendment, gun laws, taxation, and gun violence. His work has been featured in the National Review, Cato Blog, Fox Nation, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, and many more. Matt also hosts a gun law YouTube channel called Fudbusters, where he dispels myths about firearms law. After our speakers give their remarks and have some back and forth discussion, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can toward the end of today's program. With that, I'd like to begin with Professor Stevenson. Can you please tell us what this ATF final rule is that was announced in April and will go into effect next month? So what does sure. it do? What does it not do? And how did it come to be? So this is really um, uh, the rule calls itself or titles itself that it's uh, kind of redefining frames and receivers for purposes of our existing uh, firearm law framework. And just to give the quick and dirty background, federal law imposes um, manufacturing taxes on firearms uh, when they're produced for sale and <clears throat> background checks for purchasers. Um, there's licensing requirements for uh, dealers and sellers and some record keeping requirements um, uh, for uh, for both manufacturers and sellers that police use to uh, trace guns that they retrieve from crime scenes. And so like with most um, tax regimes and licensing regimes, uh, there's a, a numbers assigned, just like getting a social security uh, number for purposes of uh, paying your taxes, or if you have a corporation, it gets the equivalent, which is an EIN or employer identification number. And so um, federal law for decades has required that um, guns are stamped or marked with a serial number. Um, and this is how the guns are not only traced um, at crime scenes, but it it facilitates or it enables the enforcement of um, uh, the, the tax regime on manufacturers um, for producing guns um, uh, and the the licensing regime for sellers and the background check uh, system. In, in other words, without serial numbers on guns, um, crime guns become untraceable. Um, people who are making guns and um, in the business of selling guns are basically cheating on taxes, on their taxes, their tax cheats. And um, and sellers can uh, basically try to avoid getting a license and people who are not lawful to, um, to buy guns are able to avoid background checks designed to screen those who are legally uh, prohibited. And so we have a couple of problems that modern technology makes it easy, uh, first of all, to produce um, gun parts and therefore to sell basically unassembled gun kits that require some assembly at home. And the technology makes it easier to assemble um, guns from a kit of component parts. And <clears throat> 
So that's um, part of our situation is that the technology has changed. Also, the original regulations about parts of guns that bear this serial number, which are called frames or receivers, are basically outdated. Um, they were fine at the time they were pa uh, promulgated, but most firearms today have split or multi-part frames and receivers. And the, also the firing mechanisms in that are very common in guns has evolved beyond the um, kind of old-fashioned hammer mechanism. And so there's a couple of legal problems. First, uh, courts in recent years have been construing some of these definitions of frames and receivers so narrowly that <clears throat> it would make the law um, inapplicable to 90% or more of the guns that are currently in circulation. And so it essentially thwarts these longstanding um, uh, federal laws. And the second problem is the technology problem that it's really easy now to manufacture and sell parts kits. And it's easy for people to get these kits and basically um, assemble guns at home and um, not just for their own use, but maybe to sell to others. And so the new rule is really, um, from my perspective, nothing more than an update to existing regulations. And they're primarily um, updating the definition of frame and receiver. And um, they've made some tweaks uh, to the definition of firearm and um, readily and a few other terms, but those are the most important ones. Um, it, the media calls these ghost guns. Um, they've had uh, technical to uh, other more precise terms like workshop guns. Um, uh, a lot of people call us one subset of them 80 percenters. The rule um, refers to them as privately made firearms or PMFs. And so that's going to become the, the legal term of art uh, for these. Um, and then uh, just a couple of quick things about the rule, what the rule doesn't do. It does not apply to someone who is an individual hobbyist who makes a workshop gun at home, um, maybe with a 3D printer or by um, recycling some parts and things like that for personal use. It does apply if you are making lots of guns at home and then selling them to other people or selling them on a repeated basis to your local um, gun store, your retailer who's licensed. And so it, it, if you're going to become a small time manufacturer of firearms, all the rule says is they need to have a serial number on them, just like every other gun. Um, and if you are going to buy kits that, um, if you're going to sell kits that are basically just an unassembled gun or almost the whole thing, there needs to be a serial number, right? I mean, imagine the situation where you go to a gun store and you say, I want a gun that doesn't have a serial number. So it's, it'll be untraceable when I commit crimes and the dealer could just take it apart and hand you the, the pieces and say, well, if you put it together at home, it doesn't count as a gun. And in a sense, the rule is trying to address that. Look, if if it's if the person can just put the parts together and have an operate uh, an operational firearm, it's a gun and it needs to have a number. Um, you asked uh, before we began about the recent case of uh, Bruin from the Supreme Court. And um, and I just want to say that um, under Bruin's analysis, it's, I my take is it's actually more favorable to this regulation because it says that we start with the text of the Second Amendment. So we don't do a balancing test of like how big of a problem is this and versus how big of an infringement there under the text of the Second Amendment, the way Bruin reads the core right as being for self-defense, there is no infringement on Second Amendment rights here because a person is still able to go to the gun store and buy as many and any gun um, that they want there and arm themselves for self-defense to have guns in their home, carry guns with them in public and so forth. And so um, the, the requirement that guns have to have serial numbers is not going to interfere with anyone's ability to arm themselves, keep and bear arms for self-defense. Um, the second thing is that Bruin says that we should look at historical analogies and there are founding era analogies to requiring the guns be marked. So for example, during the Revolutionary War, George Washington required that all of the guns that were in use in the Continental Army um, basically be marked with uh, Roman numerals for 13 or US 13. And part of that, that was to trace guns because people were walking off with their guns. Um, they're issued firearms when they're tour of duty 
duty was over, people would bring guns from home when they reported for duty, and then they would get mixed in um, with the um, the militia's guns or the Continental Army's guns. And uh, and during the war, almost all of the guns in existence in the colonies were in service um, in um, uh, by the military. And so they um, so we did have some early, at least analogous um, marking systems for uh, to prevent uh, theft. And so if there was a question later, was this really your gun? Um, we know where the gun came from. We can trace the origin of the gun and so forth. Similarly, during the um, early Republic, there were militia returns that would or basically surveys or a census to count the eligible men to do militia duty. And those included reports about who had firearms uh, that they could bring with them if they had, were called up for militia duty. And so um, we, we have, and no one in the founding era thought that being asked how many guns you have infringed on your second amendment or the George Washington scheme for marking guns infringed on their second amendment. So with that, I'll uh, stop and yield here to the floor. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Stevenson. Uh, Matthew, um, can you give some of your analysis of uh, this final rule and answer uh, any of the points that uh, Professor Stevenson took on? Thank you kindly, Ryan. Um, this is regrettably firearms law is intensely complicated and it is very often um, misunderstood. And I, I think there's an incredible amount of misunderstanding with this rule. It does, in fact, apply to the individual in a very acute way. And it does, in fact, apply to you as an individual and threaten you as an individual with many years in a government cage for what is otherwise innocuous, nonviolent conduct. So for me to properly paint the scene here, let me talk about how these regulations have worked broadly and what they do actually impose. And to be clear about my biases here to begin with, I am also part of a federal licensed firearms manufacturer. Um, and in, in my own time as a private person, I helped to design some of the firearms that people can make at home. Um, be it through 3D printing or otherwise. This is a incredibly important community to me. And I hope that through, you know, my, uh, my, my testimony today, uh, it might become more important to you as well. Bruin tells us very clearly, it, it, it doesn't engage in, in a contrived reading of what the Second Amendment says. It says that any regulation that falls under the unqualified command of the Second Amendment must be subject to this test, which is the text informed by the history and tradition. That is, and in, in, I would argue in the case of a federal law, is it analogous to founding era laws that were accepted? In the case of a state law, is it analogous to um, post-Civil War era laws? When you go back to the founding era, People, people often make the claim that technology has changed in some incredibly material way because now you have these kits, right, that you can purchase and you do some work at home, right? You, usually you make the receiver. No one, is, no one was before this rulemaking uh, selling receivers that were complete, right? This would be stuff that fairly substantial transformative labor was required. Well, in the founding era, the, the most common mechanism uh, was flintlock. And then later on in the, the Civil War era, we went to cartridge and percussion. The most complicated component of a flintlock firearm or a percussion cap firearm is the lock work. And right. And that's in the old movies where you'd see, uh, you know, they, they stuff all the, stu uh, the, the powder and the shot down the bore, and then they cock back the hammer on the side. That's the lock. That was the most difficult thing to purchase. It was very common practice in the founding era to import buckets of locks from France, the Netherlands, them in volume, they would import these laws, these locks in tremendous amounts. And then you'd be able to create a smoothbore musket very, fairly easily um, in a moderately equipped shop at the time. So, these 80 percenters or whatever you want to call them. I, I don't mind the term privately made firearm. I think it's very, fairly accurate. Um, have a history as deeply rooted as our entire nation. 
So there is absolutely a history of kit-built firearms, if you if you want to go that direction. So let's now talk about what was the state of the of the um, regulatory community before this rulemaking. Well, what it was is if you are engaged in the business of make, of selling firearms, you need to have a federal firearms license. Okay. And so they had defined engaged in the business as somebody who pursues as a regular course of business and for the purpose, you know, for livelihood, right? Somebody who's engaged in this business, truly selling and making in firearms. If you were doing that, you needed to get this license. And so if you have a license, the government would command you to mark these firearms since 1968. Now, there's also a lot of confusion about the traceability of these firearms. For one, most guns in existence were not made today, right? So there's a tremendous number of hundreds of millions of firearms that were made before 1968, which have no serial numbers and are perfectly lawful to possess and transfer. And there is even a specific process for how to log this out of an FFL's bound book. For two, the trace system will only lead you to the first retail purchaser of a firearm. And what that winds up meaning is that any firearm over 15 years old is exactly as traceable as a firearm with no serial number. That's just the way that it is. The presence of a serial number does not give the police some, you know, uh, CSI level ability to, to track the, the culpability of all of its owners. Um, it is truly just a number and a number that more often than not means nothing. The big question here about this rule is can the government consistent with the constitution, consistent with any concept of ordered liberty, take one small sentence from the law, which is the frame or receiver of such a fire, right? And transform that into not only the frame or receiver, but something that may one day become the frame or receiver, or in the case of parts kits, which are contemplated by the rule, a completely obliterated frame or receiver from which you would need to make a new one. And we've already seen criminal prosecutions where the ATF has locked people in cages for owning parts kits, which were previously deemed, right, in opinion letters by the ATF to not be firearms, just all of a sudden, these were cut up kits from which hobbyists could lawfully grind away the receiver chunks, get a new receiver and rebuilt it onto that. All of the clarity that had been built in the decades before this on what is and is not a firearm receiver was rescinded by this rulemaking openly. It said all previous rulings are rescinded. Far from clarifying, we now have no idea what a receiver is, when it starts. And in these examples they provided, frankly, they were less than worthless. It seems clear to me that the impetus for this rule change was the popularity of the Polymer 80 receivers. Polymer 80s were styled after Glocks, and it would be a, a plastic receiver from which, upon which you would need to install um, Glock compatible slides, barrels, what have you. And the receiver would be incompleted. You would need to machine out some components. You would need to drill some holes. As it was, as you received it, it was a hunk of plastic. You would have to do transformative labor. Was it easy? Yes. But I posit you this question. Who cares? The law says the frame or receiver of a weapon. If it has never been completed into a weapon, how can you tell me that it falls within this, this definition of frame or receiver of such weapon? The law simply does not contemplate that. I think that this may be one of the most aggressive overreaches by the administrative branch, not only on the, the, the question of frame or receiver, but on redefining when you need to get this license. The new definition of engaged in the business could contemplate the sale of a single firearm for profit. Under that definition, say you had bought, a, say you're like me, a, a firearms collector, and you have one, you really like it, you bought it just for yourself, no intention to do anything else with it. Your buddy comes over, I really like that. I'm gonna give you three times what you paid. 
the impetus for your sale, if you make it, is a profit motive, is it not? Under that rule, it could be that you have just suddenly become a felon because you were made an offer you couldn't refuse. That doesn't seem to track well. And remember also, there's a commerce clause problem here. Previously, the, you know, the firearms that needed to be marked were only those that would be engaged in interstate commerce. Now, I don't think that's a very healthy reading of the commerce clause, right? But at least it is a reading of it. A firearm that you make in your home for your use, right? And don't bring up the hay bale case, like don't even, um, ought not be considered to be involved in interstate commerce. ATF with this rule is commanding any FFL who accepts a lawfully made privately made firearm to then market. How does it have the authority to do that? All that will do is keep these firearms outside of the FFL network, which seems, it seems counterintuitive to ATF's purported purpose. So I would posit that no, this is not a limited industry regulation. It is a massive expansion of potentially felonious conduct, and it should be taken very seriously. Professor Stevenson, do you have any, any response to any of uh, Matthew's points? A number of things he said are simply not true or are very misleading. So um, first of all, the, the new regulation says expressly to ease transition to the new definitions and marking requirements, the department will grandfather existing split frame or receiver designs previously classified by ATF as firearm frame or receiver prior to the issuance of this rule. For example, the lower receiver of the AR-15 type rifle and variants thereof are expressly included within the new definition of receiver and may be marked according to the rules that existed before um, this rule. Secondly, he um, made it sound like he when he talked about how ATF has already been arresting people and putting them in cages. Um, first of all, ATF has to um, turn prosecution over to the Department of Justice and the person gets a fair trial in uh, federal court. Um, they can raise all the arguments and put on all the evidence that they want um, and explain that they had a, a reliance on um, use uh, an estoppel argument if they want, if they had an authorization from ATF to do what they we're doing. Um, so they have an opportunity to do all of that. But the fact is, this rule that we're talking about hasn't even gone into effect yet. So the fact that Matthew is suggesting that people are already being arrested and put in cages because of this rule is ridiculous. Uh, I'm sorry, but it, the rule doesn't go into effect for another month. Um, and and then Respectfully, people, when the charging document that your client calls you with uses the exact language from the rule, I think you'd have a different perspective. It's a it's a legal basis. You can't be charged under something that hasn't gone into effect yet. A lot of good so that does can, him in the cage. <laughs> they, they can use the, the verbiage. But the fact is that I, I think the ATF would say that these people have been violating, have been uh, trying to avoid having to pay the manufacturer's tax um, or get an FFL license or things like that um, all along. And they were able to convince courts of that. Um, that the, these people were already in violation of the law. And the other thing is, he said, it applies to you and it applies to everyone who has, wants to make a gun at home. The, the final rule says over and over emphatically that it does not prohibit someone from making a, a, a PMF at home for their personal use or even transferring it to someone else. But if you're going to be in the business of this, then you have to play by the same rules as every other gun dealer for crying out loud, pay your taxes, get your license and do the background checks, follow the law, right? And we're not going to, we can't have something where, because you've come up with some sort of sophistry where I took the gun apart. So none of these parts now count as a gun. Therefore, none of the laws apply to me. That's ridiculous, right? Then we just wouldn't have a gun. So I really don't think that um, uh, that this is a, a big sweeping change. I don't understand how it keeps you from exercising what Justice Thomas said was the core right on, under the Second Amendment to defend yourself um, if you have to have a number on your gun instead of no number. Um, Respectfully, Ryan, could I get 30 seconds? Because I think we're just talking past each other. I just want to clarify. Um, so I hear what you're saying, but you're quoting from the split frame definition 
That has nothing to do with what I was talking about. The split frame definition is unique to the AR-15 situation and situations like the AR-70s and the FN scars where one would be marked and not the other. No, the, the split frame thing has nothing to do I'm with what I'm talking about. I'm not quoting from the split frame definition. That's, that was the first thing you said. response to the comments that right. they received. Right. So um, what I'm why I'm saying this affects individuals, you're right. It does not prohibit an individual from assembling a PMF. If ATF decides that the components that you used, right, which you performed transformative labor on and which you had a good faith belief were not already a firearm, and now there is no guidance, if ATF decides that, then guess what? You did commit a violation because you transferred a firearm without going through the process that they had already, um, that, that, that they had declared because you didn't think it was a firearm. And yes, these prosecutions have been happening. The fact that the rule hasn't gone into effect doesn't change the nature of, of, of what they're doing. ATF's position is that this has always been the law, right? So they do not need to wait for the rule to go into effect to use this novel argument. Um, it, but aside from that, anyway, those are just two points. I think we were talking past each other. The, the question of marking is that you do have to get it marked if it was left as an FFL, no matter no matter what happened there. That was the point I was making. Split frame, I agree with you. It doesn't change where the AR has to be marked. It doesn't change where existing firearms have to be marked, but it does call into question in the future what would have to be marked. And, it, and also there's no guidance on what would have to be marked um, in, in the more niche circumstances that you addressed earlier. And if you don't comply, you do also face criminal char uh, charges. So it's the it's the stacked uh, interwoven nature of how these provisions work with each other that do make it perilous for the individual. But aside from that, I think we're on the same page on, on the reading. Yeah. Any response before we move on to a couple of questions I have for you? I, I teach administrative law. Um, I study and teach and write about um, uh, regulations. And um, as far as regulations go, this one has extraordinarily detailed guidance about what counts um, as a frame or a receiver and where the mark is supposed to go. They included pictures of the most common types of firearms and so forth. And in the rare case um, where someone uh, isn't sure, they can ask the ATF for an opinion letter. And so it, I, I don't really, I, I'm not, I, I'm very skeptical about whether we're going to have broad-based criminal prosecutions uh, for people who honestly didn't had a, a good faith belief that they were um, complying with the law. That's all. One of the first questions I had when I, when I saw the press conference that uh, President Biden gave, one of, the, one, of the, one of the comments he said is that he was putting in place these, these new regulations, signing on to them because he was having trouble getting it passed through the Congress. Uh, it comes, it comes up with an obvious question, you know, the, the Congress in this country makes the law, not the ATF. Um, where is it? I understand the ATF is, is drawing on the gun control act of 1968 and in order to make and make these rules. But is, isn't this sort of regular or rather legislating through uh, regulation and using the administrative agencies um, to, to legislate, or is this a legitimate use of the ATF's regulatory power? I'll let Matthew go first. Thank you kindly. So uh, <laughs> I think you know what I'm going to say. Uh, a, a good regulation, something that is compliant with the APA, clarifies. There have been decades of guidance and ongoing business, right? Longstanding business on selling incomplete firearm parts between businesses. You would do this because the law regulated the receiver. It did not regulate something that would one day become the receiver. How you can take a few little words and turn it into a, uh, you know, dozens of pages cross-reference definition to where they now include things that are not firearms. By their own definition, they're saying, well, it's, it's in a course of the thing where it's going to be, a, it's in the course of manufacturing where it's going to be a firearm at one point and, and it has to be readily completed. Oh, and so what's readily? That's now a multi-page definition, uh, which by the way, uh, <laughs> you might think is a, 
rational person readily would mean, you know, like filing off a, a little sprue or, or drilling a single hole. No, uh, according to ATF, it could include, include a entire day in a fully equipped machine shop. Uh, and as somebody with a fully equipped machine shop, that is not something that is readily acquired <laughs> by, uh, by any person. Uh, this is a look, if they wanted to regulate and there's so many different parts here, right? Uh, this, this rule does so much. It changes where firearms will be marked in the future. I don't know if there's a problem with that, but it also regulates incomplete firearms. And it also changes the whole scope of who is considered to, re to be required to have an FFL. And by the way, if ATF thinks that you need an FFL for what you're doing and you don't, it's felonious. So it's, I think when you make that many changes based on a few short words, I, there might be some guys in the bar you could convince is that's a legitimate rulemaking, but um, it ain't me. Um, and so I look the the regulation is very clear that um, if you have a block of metal or something in its primordial state, it's it gives a lot of examples of things that don't count um, uh, for application of the rule. If, if for any concerned citizen who wants to play it safe instead of trying to get away with as much as they can, um, in terms of Biden's comments, look a lot of uh, if we're talking about presidential press conferences, this is political theater, and um, he's recognizing that we have um, partisan gridlock um, historically on the gun issue. And I, I attribute that personally to um, the fact that uh, gun ownership is disproportionately concentrated in our rural areas and gun violence is disproportionately concentrated in urban areas. And um, and so the, and the, the way our electoral system works, it means that um, each side is going to get a vote and the rural states there have a little more voting power. But he's correct that there is gridlock. Um, on the other hand, um, and and so when he says, look, I can just do this without Congress, the fact is that um, uh, that this has always happened in our nation's history, right? So if you go back to your like eighth grade civics class, the legislature makes the laws and the um, executive branch has to enforce the laws. But enforcement of the law requires a certain amount of exercise of discretion. And so um, for uh, all of our nation's history, we've had a system where the the, the people specifically entrusted statutorily um, with um, enforcing a law can promulgate regulations and generate a number of other legal documents like guide, uh, um, opinion, uh, interpretive letters and, um, and guide, other types of guidance documents, statements of policy um, and enforcement um, about what they, how they are interpreting um, the law. There's inherent ambiguity in all language, right? So we're never going to have a statute that's able to um, contemplate every conceivable factual situation that might ever arise in the real world. So there's always going to be problems with statutory silence, statutory gaps, and the need for gap filling and form most of our nation's history, the courts have recognized that the executive branch at times, executive agencies have to engage in some gap filling. And then they have, we have a big system of protections. We have the APA um, uh, procedures for promulgating rules. Um, we have court discretion if they take it too far. We have the major questions doctrine, um, which I, in some ways, if I was going to kind of characterize Matt's argument in a classroom, I would I would ask a class if this was, um, if he was really making a major questions doctrine argument, that he's saying that there's an, uh, the, that an agency is trying to fit an elephant into a mouse hole, as Justice Gorsuch uh, would argue that there's a, a little phrase in the statute and they're building something to reading too much into it. And, and I understand that. And that is a developing area of law. And, um, and we'll see what the courts do with this. Um, I, I, on terms of readily, the ATF is very clear in their, in their rule and in the footnotes, uh, in their final rule. Um, they're happy to work with the definition of readily that the courts have been using, um, as applied to all of our other federal firearm, uh, statutes, right? So it's really not that different or that unclear. And kind of piggybacking um, yeah. on the administrative law stuff, um, we already mentioned Bruin, which of course was the big gun case. Um, but another case that seems uh, has 
everybody's talking about is, of course, West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. And lots of people want to know, um, it, though it doesn't talk about Sh Chevron in the case directly in the, uh, in the, in the, the decisions, if, she if Chevron is, is now dead, if we're no longer using it, um, how do you think that this new this ATF final rule and the ATF rules going going forward are going to be affected by that case, by that decision, and kind of the court's disposition towards regulations from uh, executive branch agencies. Um, I personally, I, if I can go first this time, I I think that. Um, it doesn't, they didn't really address Chevron very much. Um, and it's really a major questions doctrine case. There is an extent to which major questions doctrine has evolved and is now swallowing some of the space that used to be covered by Chevron. Um, it used to be kind of an exception to Chevron and it's sort of becoming the, the exception that's beginning to swallow the rule. Um, the, the, the agency doesn't really rely heavily in, in, in ATF with this rule on Chevron deference. Um, they think that they're, um, on uh, on good ground, and that, uh, but I think that Chevron is still alive and well, um, and it's there's a competing. There's going to be some competition with major questions doctrine. There's some uncertainty. I don't think West Virginia, West Virginia versus EPA case. It's very specific, and and in fact, the EPA and a lot of legal scholars read the case and said, so this is bad. But to be honest, the EPA can do this over again, right? They're not prohibited from regulating um, uh, green uh, greenhouse gas emissions and stuff like that. They just have to um, do it a different way and do it under other statutory provisions and so forth. Um, that case also had a really confusing procedural history of the rule going into effect, out of effect, into effect. And at the time the case was brought, the rule actually wasn't even in effect. They just wanted to kind of preempted getting re-implemented. And so I think it will be easy for future courts to um, distinguish that. Matthew? Yeah, it, and people have been asking me a lot about how I feel uh, West Virginia v. EPA you know, works on the ATF. And I think I'll, I'll tend to agree with a lot of Professor Stevenson there. It, it does indicate and here's where I'll disagree. It does indicate to me uh, the, the, the Supreme Court is aware of the deep concerns that we have with administrative agencies and and kind of the amount of wilding that they're doing. You know, they, they are they're growing more and more aggressive and brazen. Uh, and I often have debates with my friends on whether ATF is the most aggressive or, <laughs> or not. Um, but. Uh, I think there's an appetite to correct administrative overreach. I don't know which direction it'll go. And, and a lot of this is interesting because many of these cases where we explored ATF's power were during the Trump administration, where ATF was specifically waiving Chevron and refusing to bring mm -hmm. it up in those cases. Correct. Yeah. And so we didn't get to see that meted out so many times. There was one case where the, actually the court just, imposed it anyway. And, and that was a, a fascinating situation, despite the government waiving it. Uh, so I think that Chevron's going somewhere. I don't know where it's going. Uh, I hope it's far away. <laughs> Pivoting a little bit, I wanted to talk about not necessarily the ATA final rule, but some of the, there have been efforts on the legislative side to be even more aggressive and combating what what the me media and people uh, people would call ghost guns. Um, in both houses of Congress, for instance, Democrats have introduced bills uh, to ban 3D printing of firearms, ban uh, these these uh, buy uh, build shoot kits, etc. And we often see. Uh, we often see that where Congress fails in a lot of cases because of the gridlock that Dr. Steven, uh, Professor Stevenson rather uh, mentioned that is the ATF after they, if they quote unquote, get away with this rule, um, if this, if this goes in, into effect and isn't struck down by the courts is the next thing on the ATF's list to more aggressively combat uh, 3d printing of firearms, the, uh, Home, homemade firearms, the stuff that is in your house that it does necessarily affect the individual. 
So if I may, um, I think my personal opinion is that between Bruin and West Virginia, that many of the administrative agencies are going to kind of see the writing on the wall. And I think it's likely that we'll see a strategic pull back uh, from these, these groups. It, no matter what side you're on, it's clear that the ground is fertile to challenge these types of rulemaking. Um, that said, 3D printing and, you know, and being somebody who's deeply connected to that community is very hard to force feed into this, uh, this mechanism here. Everything that ATF is doing, it comes down to declaring something a firearm right before it travels interstate. And thus, you you need to get your special permission for them or else you get to go in the special cage. With a 3D printing of a receiver, the only way to do it would be to regulate the plastic. I mean, we've seen the government try to go after the sharing of the files. That was a nightmare for them. I don't think that they will be barking up that tree again anytime soon. Uh, so I, I think that additive manufacturing is likely safe um, from further assaults. Uh, I, I think that where the real big questions are is the more old fashioned, ironically, the, the more owned old fashioned home gun building that was prevalent in the the fifties and sixties, which is, you know, um, making an AK from a, a, a steel flat um, stuff like that. That's where, you know, we in the industry have our concerns. Ryan, can you repeat the original question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So essentially um, I wanted to know with, with the, if this ATF rule goes and goes into the fact is, is, is the ATF's next, what, what, if what they're going to be looking at next oh. is going to be 3D printing of firearms, home building of firearms, buy, buy build shoot kits. We already see in both both houses of Congress is there are bills to uh, ban ban all of those. So is this the next uh, next on the on the list for the ATF? Uh, <clears throat> so I don't think so. But that being said, the ATF just got a new uh, Senate confirmed director for the first time in 15 years and Long maybe time, only yeah. the second time uh, in, in its history. And so um, we're going to see a new it, it's a different game, right? An acting director of ATF of any agency walks cautiously in terms of setting the policy agenda and uh, right. And, um, and uh, Matt, uh, I agreed with a lot of the stuff Matt said a, a couple comments ago that we have, we, um, including that the ATF cases during the Trump years were very confusing because of his use of uh, he, um, his unorthodox way of appointing acting directors um, of agencies, which made the legality of their mm-hmm. actions come into question in uh, uh, all across the administrative state. And um, so now we have an acting director. And so we're going to have a time of policy setting that that we haven't had in a long time. And there's a sense in which the ATF has sort of been just, I think, taking mostly um, uh, marching orders from the attorney general uh, mm-hmm. while they've and uh, in, in doing enforcement. Um, I don't think that 3D printed guns are their number one focus right now. I think that they um, are more likely to worry about um, uh, to to overhaul their um, enforcement of gun dealers. Um, there's a few, most gun dealers, it seems like are pretty much law abiding and, and playing by the rules. And there's like many industries, there's a few bad apples that are responsible for a grossly disproportionate number of the crime gun, uh, guns that are retrieved from crime scenes. And so if, I kind of expect that to happen. Um, I expect the ATF to um, start coordinating a little bit more with the FBI about the NICS background check system and making some updates. We just had a a federal, a big uh, package of federal legislation um, passed that Mm -hmm. is going to make ATF have to kind of uh, probably promulgate some new regulations to clarify things about background checks for young people um, and uh, what records will be sent to the the, um, NICS database and things like that. And then the employment thing, that's going to be a whole. uh The (laughs) employment thing, the boyfriend loophole and some things like that. And so, and some of that is going to be done 
by the DOJ and some of it's going to be done by the ATF. Um, I, I, I think that, so I agree with Matt that, um, and I think that if people are making a lot of 3D guns and selling them on the street without serial numbers, they're going to get caught up in an ATF dragnet operation. Yeah, um, and that's always been illegal for sure. Right. And I don't, and, and there's also a separate federal law about making designing plastic guns specifically to circumvent metal detectors and airports and things like that. Um, but I don't think they were, if you want to go buy an $800 uh, 3d printer and print your, you know, have your little project at home. I, I don't, I'm, I would be surprised if that's ATF's um, priority. They're one hundred and fifty dollars now, by the way. Oh, okay, okay. One hundred and fifty. Well, I, I got mine for you, two. I yeah. know, but if you're gonna do it, don't you want a good one? That is a good one. Good one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good enough. Uh, if we can, we can, we can have a separate uh, webinar on yeah. the quality of three uh, right. D printers. I'm yeah. sure. Um, but with fifty minutes left, I'd like to turn to some audience Q and A now. Uh, if you guys are okay with that, um, the, f one of the first questions was. Um, the, the the final rule creates an entirely new federal crimes of criminal conspiracy to sell it uh, to, to sell and structuring to purchase unregulated firearm parts. Will people be prosecuted for purchasing parts separately from different retailers, or will retailers be prosecuted for selling them some parts lower in frame, for instance, but not all of the parts? How, how does how does so, so essentially, how does the criminal conspiracy and structuring to purchase unregulated firearms work in this new final rule? The interesting thing, and I think Professor Stevenson will probably agree with me, is that I don't think they even needed to do that, right? Because the conspiracy can apply to any, um, right, any crime like that. Right. Uh, the, the problem is, is that we do not know how it is going to work with, with getting your, your parts from different vendors, because one of the factors in, in whether or not it is uh, readily uh, converted into a firearm is what other components are available from a particular seller, which respectfully I'll say is, is, is clear as mud, but um, that, that is a question we have and, and was not properly answered because uh, it, some people were saying, oh, well, so now we're just going to get part A from seller, you know, X and part B from seller Y. Well, we're, we just don't actually know what their plan is there. I mean, kind of logically, it seems that they wouldn't be able to um, attack companies that were acting completely individually and, and just selling their part. But whether an email between the two of them being like, hey, should we have a sale? You know, would that be enough? I, I don't know. I, I, um, uh, I think that all this really only applies to frames and receivers, not the other parts of the firearm and whether it, uh, there's a serial number, um, on what the ATF is considering a frame or receiver. And so, um, are you, uh, if a person is actually trying to buy different parts of the same frame or receiver from different manufacturers, um, the, um, at some point, the, the manufacturers are going to ATF is going to tell one of the manufacturers that that's the part that we think needs um a serial number i i think the regulation is very detailed and well, hold on let me interrupt you because that what he was act, asking is something that was actually very specific in the regulation it's the combination of parts can be considered the fire the frame or receiver so atf the one of the only things that atf said was okay and good to go in the rule was the ar 80 percent, and it seems that the jig and the drill bits and, and whatever when combined with that are not okay, right? They consider that to be a firearm. So then the question becomes, it's really more of the jig and the, and the frame. That's the more realistic, I think, situation. Okay, but ultimately, the this is a question about having a serial number. And um, well, but it, on, you 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 don't need an FFL to sell either of those parts. And so you don't need to serialize them. I, I understand. Yeah. But um, I, I think that the if you're a manufacturer that's selling a piece that can easily be um, is in the final stage, basically, um, to assemble into a frame or receiver, um, your lawyer should get an opinion letter from ATF about whether it, you should be putting a serial number. It's not that big a deal to put a serial number on the part. I, I, I don't I don't see what the the huge objection to this is um it, the, this is i really see this as ultimately are you making guns 
that um, are unserialized so that you can avoid paying taxes and um, paying the tax on them, avoid um, having an FFL and avoid doing background checks. Our, our next question is kind of about the question of being readily convertible. Convertible, um, And I'm combining a lot of these questions. We've had lots of people asking similar things, but can you define specifically under these new new rules, what is readily convertible and what isn't? Like I know the ATF and the final rule said a, a block of steel or liquid polymer isn't readily convertible, but w beyond beyond that, what what isn't readily convertible and where, where does that line get drawn? This is probably a point that Matt and I disagree on. I think they get, although we both agree that they go on for pages and pages about this. They have a very I guess if you're going to say it's clear, I would love to challenge you to, to give me three examples on each side. Okay. Um, I, I think it's that weren't detailed. from the document. I think it's detailed, <laughs> but the problem, one of the problems with um, legal specificity is that, that, you know, it's that verse from Ecclesiastes, the more words, the less the meaning, right? Mm. Um, that as we try to make things um, go for regulatory precision, it becomes harder and harder for a layperson to read. I, I do understand that. I think that they give a very, very detailed, um, they try to uh, err on the side of specificity with what counts as readily convertible. But I, I understand that Matt thinks that there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Well, and it's, you know, very respectfully, I yeah. work in the firearms industry. I know what these parts look like and I know what they all do. And I also know that they said one or more of the following that doesn't give me a lot. And I know that it then continues onto how it's marketed, what other products are available for sale on the website. Like that doesn't seem like it, it should be able to come into play. And I'll tell you as somebody who this is my career, um, you know, specifically helping companies with this, a lot of times, all I can say is, I don't know. <laughs> I know what it was before. Um, and I'll, and I'll give you my analysis on, you know, on, on an individual component, right? I'll try to check as many boxes as possible, but there was no, like, there was a lot of, uh, factors that you can consider, but then ATF specifically says no one or any of these are dispositive and we can add more if we want. Uh, so if I, if I were to ever advise a client that that's not a firearm, I feel like I'd be committing malpractice because I don't think I can do that. <laughs> And with with that, you know, does a, a a person engaged in the industry, as you said, or a person trying to buy a, a firearm in this way or a firearm parts and trying to make sure they're on the right end of the law, um, do, do they have to consult a firearms lawyer every time you want to buy a fire a firearms part? And and if if it is this complicated and there's some of this ambiguity, does that in, in effect have a chilling effect on some of these Second Amendment rights if if they are scared to sell a firearm part or, or a firearm or to buy one because of these rules? And could it be challenged on that basis in the courts? Well, we did make a mistake in our constitution by writing article three, right? So it's very easy to, <laughs> to get rid of cases <laughs> on, on standing, which is what they would tend to do in those situations. Um, but I'll, let me tell you something that, that a lot of people don't think about with this. This is the back, the background. I, I understand professor Stevenson's concerned about serialization of firearms, despite the fact that the serial number has literally never done anything ever. Um, just a, a respectful joke, um, except they're actually useless. <clears throat> the, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In the butt, <laughs> At the shooting that happened on July 4th, they were able to track they got down to the first the retail purchaser, which was him, right? Within 24 hours because of the serial number on the, on the gun, gun that they shot. had in their hand because they had the guy. Uh, anyway, right. Um, right. Yeah, they had the guy. They didn't right. have the guy. They had the gun and they were able to find the guy because they got the gun. And it was all done on a federal holiday. I couldn't believe it. Um, and so I. And what if it, but if anyway, I'm. I understand your point. My point is it's less useful than people think, you know, but sure it has uses. Um, I'll, I'll give you that. The real thing that, that this really affects is how businesses interact with each other. Comparative advantage is a really real thing. A company that's really good at stamping should be making stampings, right? In the background, gun companies trade incomplete parts constantly to keep costs down, right? And to be able to, to perform better. When you subject incomplete parts to treatment as a firearm, it makes it virtually impossible for us to work together and use each other's components. 
it's putting on the serial number. Well, one mechanically, it's actually, it's a little more difficult than you might think. Like we, we use a laser. That's the easiest way to do it. It's still a setup and a fixture. You know, it's a little bit of labor for each individual one, but that's not, I don't think the labor of the serial number is the real problem. It's the, the legal treatment of the firearm at that time. So the, the, the big concern here is really how it is going to drive costs up because businesses will not want to sell component parts to each other. And I mean, don't try to tell me this isn't a real concern because we used to buy pallets of incomplete uh, components years ago, because guess what? The company that has the massive steel stamping breaks and that just makes AK uh, stampings every day, all day can do it a lot cheaper than we can. <laughs> so um, it's going to drive up costs, but standing is going to be a infuriating question here. I, I look, I, I don't think it affects most of the component parts for a gun. There's going to be plenty of um, exchange. This is about serial numbers on frames and receivers. And I don't think it will take long for I. I understand anytime you have a regulation of an industry, the industry says this is the end of the world, right? Um, it, 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 I teach a case in administrative law about putting those little stickers on the gas pumps that tell you what grade the gasoline is. And the oil industry went completely nuts over having to put a sticker on their gas pump with a little number, right? And said, this is, it's the end of the world, right? Because they wanted and, to sell junk gas. Right, they were <laughs> well, selling junk gas. Well, they, so, that, they wanted to sell junk gas, really. And, and the fact <laughs> is, um, the agency that was doing it at the time, it, it was a lot less clear than with ATF, um, whether they were acting within their statutory authority and so on. This was the, the Federal Trade Commission just kind of decided one day that they had authority to re regulate stickers on gas pumps. And um, and so I um, I, I don't think um, it, this only affects the frame or receiver part. And I don't think it will take long at all for the manufacturers to sort out with the ATF which part is supposed to have the serial number. That's all this is about. I don't think it's going to I, I would be shocked if. Um, the people walking into an FFL and buying a gun notice a, even an incremental price increase because of this regulation in particular on a complete firearm. The kits, yes, the kits are going to be a little more expensive, but only because they have to add a serial number. Well, no one will buy one that has that. But you, you are aware that it's not just a serial number, right? You have to put your entire manufacturer's information on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as a manufacturer, I can't just use yours. So it I, creates another problem where I, I, I would have to. But I don't think this is all that different from what it was before the rule. In terms it's of it's unbelievably rule. different. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll, we can agree. And, then we're, and now we're that. paying tax on it twice, by the way. So I, it's, I, it's, uh, it is a huge problem. I don't think you'll end up having to pay tax twice. Oh, well, um, we coming up to the top of the hour, and I have uh, an, another question here from the audience that have come uh, meshed together. Um, and this might be more up Matthew's alley because he's in, in the industry. But um, we see, unlike with other industries, when when a when uh, agency comes out with a rule, we'll often see in other industries uh, the private actors complying with them before they even get put into place or are announced. Uh, Pre-compliance is, is a very real thing. It, it's not the case in, in the gun industry. Um, and in fact, we, we see tons of examples of in the firearms industry, uh, uh, manufacturers actively trying to circumvent whatever the new rule is. You could say, uh, stabilizing braces on, uh, AR pistols, uh, in order to make short, what are essentially short barreled rifles, bump stocks and binary triggers to uh, simulate automatic weapons. What with these new rules going into effect, how do you think the industry will react and what's going to be the, the next new development in order to get around these regulations? I don't know what, uh, so we need to know what these actually mean for us before we can even attempt to you know, get around them. And, um, and I don't like the term circumvent. I like the term malicious compliance, uh, which is a distinctly American thing to do. And it is at the foundation of, of, of us as a people. Um, I, I'll say the reason is likely because, well, it's two things. One principle, right? This is a, a fundamental right Two. 
realistically in the industry, especially when you work with components like incomplete receivers, these are imported or manufactured in large batches. Um, I'm aware that distributors are currently 10% overstocked, which means you have overstock going down the line. So I, I think what we're going to see is sales leading up to this point. Um, they're going to want to clear out their inventory. I, and I think it's probably explained as simply as that. Understood. Well, any last, any last words from either of you before we, we, we close out today and thank you. Thank you both so much for, thank for being you for here. having me. I, uh, this has been fun. Yes, it was fun. Thank you so much. And, and thank you, Professor Stevenson. It was a, it was a pleasure, a pleasurable night fight. <laughs> Marcus of Queensberry rules. I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I would like to thank both of you for the benefit of your time and expertise today. And I would like to thank our audience for joining us and for participating with those great questions. I'm sorry that we weren't able to get to all of them. There were there were a ton. Um, but we welcome listener feedback uh, by email at info at fed-sot.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcement about upcoming webinars and other events. And this uh, webinar, of course, will be posted after the fact on our YouTube and page uh, in a couple of days after it gets uh, edited and accepted. But thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.